How do we know that the Old Testament is reliable? Hey guys, in today's podcast, we're going to look at how scholars criticize the Old Testament to say it's not reliable because of the grammar and style of language it uses, but I'm going to show you why they're dead wrong. Hey, I'm William Dyer. This is Dyer Conversations. Thanks for joining me in today's podcast. If you are just jumping into this episode, I want you to know that there are earlier episodes in a series that I'm doing. So I'm going to put a link on the screen above right now and also a link in the description below. But let's go ahead and get into today's podcast. Okay, in the last episode, I went over pillar number one in the historical critical method, and we talked about why it failed. So in today's episode, we're talking about pillar number two. And pillar number two is going to be variations of language and style. So here's what the critical scholar will say. They'll look at the text in the Law of Moses, and they'll notice these different grammatical structures, uh, different language, different style, different words used different grammar, just a different way of writing, okay? And they'll look at that and say, okay, this has got to be indicative of multiple authors behind the text. So they'll examine the Law of Moses, and they'll look for these patterns. And they'll start to um, kind of establish these patterns and say, well, here's uh, kind of one style of writing, or here's one group of the same types of words that are used, the same way a sentence is structured or the same way God is referred to. And they'll start to kind of block those off into different pattern structures and go, okay, pattern structure over here, this has got to be from one uh, source. And pattern, pattern structure over here, this is from another source. And then this pattern structure as well, this is from another source. And so they'll go through the entire law of Moses and they'll chop it all up and attribute it to all these different sources. Now, one of the uh, first proponents of this and one of the main figures behind it, if you want to go research it for yourself, is a guy named Johann Eichhorn. Um, he's, again, one of the original proponents of the view. But here's the problem with this view, is it has a bunch of arbitrary rules. What do I mean by this? Let's say you and I are both critical scholars, and we're looking at the Law of Moses. And I start looking into it, and I go, hey, look, I'm finding this pattern right here. And you might go, yeah, I don't think that's a pattern. Uh, I think this is a pattern instead. And I go, yeah, I don't agree. I don't think that's a pattern. Well, who's right or who's wrong? Well, it doesn't really matter, because in this camp of biblical scholarship, you'll just kind of go off and form your theory about, okay, well, here's the ones who I think are sources, and I'll go off and form my theory and go, here's my uh, group of sources, and it's all good. It doesn't matter. And so the rules are arbitrary. There's no standard by which we're both working off of, and this is a problem. Okay, so let me give you a quote by a guy named Umberto Casuto, and he is a rabbi and a Hebrew scholar. And again, I'll put the footnotes in the description below so that way you can go do your own research. But he says this long and comprehensive list of words and grammatical forms peculiar to each of the main sources were drawn up. And he goes on kind of in this quote to critique the historical critical method a bit and kind of say, you guys are just compounding and compounding and adding and adding, and the rules are just multiplying and multiplying ad infinitum, and there's no end to it. 
because there's no standard. There's no rules. It's just a matter of if you think there's a pattern, you kind of go run with that theory. And if I think there's a pattern over here, I go run with that theory. And we just keep throwing rules and rules and rules upon each other. But here's another problem with that. The other problem is when you get a person who goes, yeah, I don't, I don't think the way you're looking at the scriptures is correct. I don't think your rules actually work. And then they give evidence for why the rules don't work. Then the historical critical scholar will go, well, I just need to come up with more rules on why there's exceptions to my first rules. And as you see, if that's the case, then you're just going to, if I debunk those rules, now you're going to add more rules, and I'll debunk these rules, and you'll add more rules, and we never get to any conclusion. So that's one of the first problems with it. However, there's other major problems with this. Why is an author, any author, doesn't matter if it's a biblical author or not. Why is any author restricted to only one style of writing? You see, that's an assumption that these critical scholars make, is they go, all right, listen, if we see different styles, different patterns of writing, there has to be multiple authors here. Well, my first question is why? Why? That, that, that doesn't pass the common sense test. I mean, in my experience, listen, not only do I do this podcast, but I'm in grad school right now, and I'm in grad school for philosophy, so I have to write some pretty hefty research papers. When I write a research paper, the style of language that I use, the way that I write is not the same way that I speak even on this podcast. These podcast episodes that I write is not the same way when I write a sermon to preach at church or when I write a Sunday school lesson to teach. And none of that is the same as when I go to teach middle schoolers about the Bible. So it depends on the context by which the author is entering into or the audience that the author has. That will dictate this sort of style and grammar that he uses. So it's ridiculous to think that an author is going to be restricted to only one style of writing, only one sort of way to use grammar. I just think that fails uh, the common sense test. But here's a second thing to think about. The criti critical scholar might come back and go, well, you know, Billy, you might have a point. However, these were letters that were written to one audience. And since they're written to that one audience, and that audience is going to be the same, then they should have just used one style. Okay, fair thought. However, that fails for multiple reasons. Here's why. The original audience, Israel, was not a homogeneous group that is all the same. First of all, think about it like this. Israel was made up of 12 tribes. And at first, they were kind of loosely fitted together tribes. They weren't one nation, really, until the time of David. So you get these 12 tribes. But in these 12 tribes, you have men, women, children, elderly people, farmers, you know, blacksmith, priest. You, I mean, you have people from all walks of life, rich, poor, everything in between. So to think that the original audience was just this one group is kind of ridiculous in and of itself. You're going to have people of different education levels, people who have different skills, can relate to different things. So even the original audience, you're going to have to write in different ways to be able to hit everybody. Secondly, 
these letters weren't just meant for Israel. They were also going to be used as a way, as a witness, a way to approach the larger audience of the heathen world that the Israelites were living among. So, you know, God, even knowing this, is going to have the letters written in such a way that everybody, not just the Israelite, but everybody can relate to it. Because here we are, thousands and thousands of years later, in America, still reading these letters that were written way back then. And so we have to be able to relate to them in some sense. So again, we can't just restrict the original audience. This is like one little collective group that all thought the same, you know, spoke the same, had the same intellectual level, you know, all that sort of stuff. No, it's just not the case. If we move past the common sense aspect of it and actually look at applying the principle to the text of Scripture, this fails the theological test. So I'm going to give you one example here. It's a little bit technical, but I'm going to put the words on the screen because, number one, I'm not really going to be the best at pronouncing it because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, um, but also I want you to be able to see it so that way we don't lose uh, you in the confusion of the words and all the different terms. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 17 in relation to the way that the text talks about covenants. So here's the first phrase that's going to pop up on the bottom of your screen right now. That's the actual Hebrew phrase that's used, and it means that he established a covenant. However, there's another phrase that's used here in the same sort of passage and also throughout the rest of the Law of Moses, and here's the phrase, and it means he cut a covenant. And so what the historical critical scholar uh, will do is he'll look at these two different phrases, he established a covenant versus he cut a covenant, and they'll say, look, clearly that's two different ways to refer to a covenant, therefore these are different sources, they have to come from different cultures, different sources. But let's exactly, let's actually examine the text and see how these phrases are used. So Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, is God interacting with Abraham, very uh, famous passage, very important passage in regards to the Old Testament. And in verse 7, here's what the text says. This is God speaking, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So God's saying, I'm going to establish my covenant between you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so that's the first phrase that we gave you. However, right, so that's God promising that he's going to do this for Abraham and then also the descendants after him. However, if you go back to verse 4 in Genesis 17, you'll notice this. God says, behold, my covenant is with you. Presently, that is and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. So on one hand, we have God saying that he's going to establish a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. On the other hand, God says that the covenant is presently with Abraham. So again, the critical scholar will look at stuff like this and say, well, these are two different sources that are being uh, pulled in together. So to take a shortcut, let me explain to you exactly what this means if you study it throughout the rest of the Law of Moses. These two phrases are used not to refer to the same thing in the same way, 
but they refer to the same thing, but two different aspects of it. So this phrase that we talked about earlier connotes that a promise was given, but this phrase assures that the promise will be fulfilled. So in one sense, it's like, hey, a promise is given. In the other sense, I'm going to definitely fulfill it, and you can take that one to the bank. So we have two different aspects, two different um, parts of the actual making of a covenant. So again, you get into the text and you realize there's a reason why there's these different phrases. But the critical scholar, again, looks at that sort of thing, jumps to the conclusion and says there must be different sources, and off and running they are with their theories. But it just falls under the weight of the evidence. Okay, guys, thanks for joining me on today's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or you disagree with me, make sure to leave me a comment down below. Also, like this video and subscribe to my channel if you haven't already. And until next time, keep on examining the evidence.